understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi. I guess nobody's starting, so I will. Welcome to this uh, third edition of uh, Beer with Blue Marble Space. Uh, this is our monthly podcast on topics relevant to the science undertaken by the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. Uh, today we have the great pleasure of welcoming Dr. Sarah Walker, who's at the Beyond Center at Arizona State. But first, I will let Mark introduce, uh, uh, sorry, Professor Mark Clare of the University of East Anglia to introduce uh, our beverage tonight. Oh, thank you very much, Sanjay. I, I must admit that, that right now I do happen to be actually drinking uh, some wine. <laughs> Uh, and this wine happens to be from the, the Clare Valley, uh, <laughs> which is uh, somewhere, somewhere in uh, Australia. But I'm not going to be talking about Clare Valley wine. Uh, I'm going to be talking about a wine from my new uh, backyard. A beer. I'm sorry, a beer from my new backyard. And that would be uh, Woodford's Worry Bitter. Uh, now, it is, in fact, as everyone uh, here in uh, England likes to call, a real ale. So I, I realize that there are people listening to this in, in the United States where they should not be drinking if they are, uh, of course, under the age of 21. Uh, but if you are in, uh, in the Great Island of Britain, you can drink if you are uh, over the age of 18. Responsibly, of course. Is it 16? Wow, we're all crazy here. Um, but what we have over here is a thing called real ale, which uh, I, I think that I had never really drunk before. The two main characteristics of real ale are, one, that it's not served cold. So real ale is served at uh, room temperature. Uh, and two, it's not carbonated. So it's flat. So uh, I am presenting to you all a actually quite delicious uh, warm and flat beer. Uh, called uh, Woodford's uh, Worry Bitter. It is much better than it sounds. They're actually all served on uh, gravity taps or with hand pumps, right, because you don't actually have the pressure induced by the, uh, the sort of artificial CO2, which is driven into beers uh, in standard kegging systems. Um, so uh, the, the beer is from near uh, Norwich. So I've, uh, you've got a, a big map there showing you, just in case you don't know where Norwich is, which is near where I am on the... Uh, northeastern uh, uh, coast or southeastern coast of, of, uh, of England. The map is available uh, on bmsis.org slash podcast, but carry on. Sorry. Thank you very much. Uh, and then the, the, the lower map, uh, A, shows the location of the Woodford's Brewery, uh, which is in an area uh, called the Broads, which is where these uh, the three great rivers of uh, eastern England, the Yar and the Burr, uh, all wind up coming together down uh, to what's on the, the corner of your image, the great Yarmouth uh, down at the end. So the, uh, the Woodford Wherry, uh, Woodford makes a bunch of different brews, but the Wherry is a, a, a classic bitter, uh, which has won uh, numerous awards. It is crisp, has some hints of like a, a very kind of fruity, Sour fruit, like a grapefruit, uh, tinge to it, um, and uh, goes down extremely smoothly. And it is served at the uh, Union Pub on the UEA campus. So, if any of y'all uh, ever get a chance to visit me at the University of East Anglia, it is the uh, the hometown hometown brew. 
Uh, so with that uh, fine introduction, I hope, I'm going to turn over the reins here uh, to Sarah Walker, who's going to be uh, talking to us today. Uh, Sarah got her PhD from Dartmouth College, uh, and after a brief stint as a postdoc at Georgia Tech at the Center for Chemical Evolution, uh, wound up at uh, Arizona State University, where she's working in a very coolly titled place called the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science, which sounds highly awesome. Um, And if you have not yet bought Sarah her Christmas gift, I will let you know that her favorite color is cobalt blue. Uh, And you could get something for her beagles or her parrotlet. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) <laughs> for the lovely interaction. Um, yeah, so I'm actually really excited today to talk to you guys about some of my favorite um, topics in science. And I hope you'll interrupt me because I think I might get a little abstract at times. Um, but we are trying to go beyond a little bit here, I think. So um, there will be some connections between fundamental mathematics and the origin of life in this talk at some point. And feel free to interrupt anytime. Um, So I wanted to start today with kind of the normal viewpoint people have on what von Neumann machines are, because I'm going to try to connect them to research on the original life, but this isn't really traditionally what we in astrobiology think of when we think about von Neumann self-replicating machines. And the canonical picture that we think of, if you look at the slide that I sent out, is this little thing in like the right-hand corner here which is some kind of machine that's capable of extracting resources from its environment and copying itself. And uh, therefore, it's used as a a particularly um, interesting type of technology for extraterrestrials to use uh, to colonize a galaxy, for example, because you can send out a few of these probes. They'll take resources on whatever planetary environment they find and copy themselves and therefore... Um, potentially fill up the uh, galaxy with extraterrestrial technology. Um, So I think Dimitra actually sent out a paper about this earlier this week to the BMS list, and um, they were kind of interesting about talking about the Fermi paradox with von Neumann probes, and I have kind of my own potential resolution to that, which is basically that I think there's nothing different between a von Neumann probe and a normal biological system. So if you think about what biology does, biology self-replicates itself, it invades new niches, and it dominates them. So whatever constraints we have on extraterrestrials themselves, we're also going to have on their technology in some sense. And I think this kind of relates to some of the stuff Jacob has talked about, about sustainability issues um, with uh, extragalactic expansion. Um, So I kind of want to transition into more talking about von Neumann machines as a good analogy for understanding biological systems rather than as a technological device. Um, And so when I think about a von Neumann machine, I actually think about the fact that I myself am, in, in fact, a machine, so I can do like a little robotic dance for that, but it's a little bit more elegant than that. So it could be more like Transformers where we're actually more than meets the eye, we're not just a very simple machine. It's a very actually complicated um, system, and it has some very, very um, deep connections to physics that I think um, haven't really been explored and may potentially uh, shed some light on what the heck was going on when life got started in the first place, because it's a very confusing subject. 
Um, so I wanted to give a little background about von Neumann because I think he's an interesting character and he's a very um, controversial figure. Um, so I think this gives a little bit of context to his, uh, his life and times and his work. Uh, he had two wives, which is a little bit unusual, and they were renowned in Princeton for throwing very lavish parties. Uh, he could drink, it said that he could drink a quart of whiskey and then drive for an, like drink it in an hour and then drive and have no problems. So he really liked to indulge in alcohol and, uh, really rich foods. I wouldn't recommend it, especially for you youngins. Mark gave a good disclaimer on that earlier. Um, but, um, more controversially, he had a very cynical view about humanity uh, and he was really a proponent of something called preventative war. So with the whole issue with, um, the Cold War between Russia and the United States. He actually, when Russians uh, detonated their first nuclear bomb, von Neumann was one of the first to stay up, step up and say that we should just start bombing them and bomb them into the Stone Age. And he's literally quoted as saying that. So he um, really, really had a cynical view about humanity. But on the flip side of it, he was also a complete and utter genius. He really, really was a very profound intellect. Um, it's as a child, he could divide two eight-digit numbers. He um, published a paper on ordinal numbers by the time he was 20. Uh, did fundamental work in game theory, foundations of quantum mechanics. He was a military strategist. Even on his deathbed when he died in 1957, he had to have a security detail because they were afraid he was going to give away military secrets. Um, so he was really um, quite a fascinating person. And I think he was quite obsessed with the idea of self-reproducing machines, um, which I'm going to talk about for the rest of the talk. And he worked on these really from the 1940s through up through the 50s um, until his death in 1957. And he didn't really finish his work. Um, so there's some debate in the community about whether it was actually really profound or really trivial. Uh, I lean toward profound because if you actually look at the context of what he was working on um, and look at the work that uh, predicated it, um, there's some very uh, deep conceptual issues there that I think are, are pretty fascinating. Um, one of the things that kind of really spawned von Neumann to think about a self-reproducing machine was actually Alan Turing's work on computation. And so one of the things that uh, Turing is really famous for is the coming up with the idea, which is really a theoretical concept, but is the foundation of modern compu computation, um, of a Turing machine, which is a simple computer that can perform any possible calculation. And in reality, any computer, you can build a very simple device, which just takes tape of zeros and ones, and it can do any possible computation. So Forgive me if I can interrupt, yes. since you said we should. Jacob, just to check, no actual working computer architecture uses a Turing system, right? Uh, well, not the Turing machine that Turing developed. That's just sort of a mathematical device. That, um, okay. Although the language, um, I guess it's, it's uh, brain fuck officially. Um, is basically a, a, a Turing machine, but no one programs in it. And if you learn that language, uh, it'll sort of do that to you. Yeah, there's also. So we're using von Neumann's more than Turing's here. Okay. <laughs> there's a. Um, I think the, like the the more important thing is that you can actually build a universal language for computation, and I think all of computer programming is kind of based on that concept. So it's not you don't there's not. There can't actually be a physical realization of a Turing machine, but a lot of the theoretical implications of it are heavily used in modern computation. And, 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 
If I could add to that too, Sarah. Um, yes, please. Just because a computer is not designed after Turing's architecture, I think, although I don't know how to prove this, I'm pretty sure you can demonstrate that modern computers are, um, if you can compute something on a Turing machine, then it is computable on a modern computer as well. Yes. Anything is computable on an ideal Turing machine. Not anything is computable on a modern computer because there's physical limitations of it. So you don't, right. for example, you don't have infinite amount of time to do a computation. In an idealized Turing machine, you could potentially have infinite amount of time to do a computation if that's how long it would take to do it. So there's, there's some subtleties like that where it's not actually physically achievable. Um, so the reason I bring this up is that actually, uh, so von Neumann was very well aware of Turing's work on computation, and he was actually really curious if, if it's possible for a computer to potentially compute any possible task, is it also possible for a robot to perform any physical task? And so included in this is potentially replication of itself. So a physical task is building myself. That is, you know, so if I, ha if I can build something that can do any physical task, it should be able to do that. Um, so he started originally trying to develop a kinematic model, so an actual physical robot, robotic model um, of how one might achieve this. And for von Neumann, I think this was kind of a, a dead-end route, but it led to some new ideas for him. Um, so his basic model was, uh, what if I put a robot on a lake, and that lake contains all the arms and all of the, you know, fusing elements and everything else I need to build this robot, and the robot can, you know, just jostle around on the lake and, and pick up the parts it needs. And uh, he found it unsatisfactory for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, we could get into all the details of that, but the, the main one is that it's not mathematically rigorous, and it's very difficult to actually, it, it became too techno technologically challenging to devise such a robot. And I think for von Neumann, what he was fundamentally interested in was self-reproduction possible to quantify mathematically. Clearly, it was possible physically because biological systems do it, but it turns out actually to be kind of a non-trivial mathematical problem. And that's really where he uh, turned his attention uh, after uh, toying around with this kinema kinematic model for a number of years. So what von Neumann did was move to a more abstract realm, and on this slide I have here on the left-hand side, um, on what looks like this circuit diagram is a picture of what's called a uh, self-reproducing automata. And so von Neumann was really into um, automata. Sorry, I always say them wrong. Uh, and he, um, basically what they are is just abstract machines that you, you can play around with in, in a computer environment. And so he actually did this prior to any um, computer being able to actually execute these things. So he, he really just did this on pen and paper. Um, but, but these pictures that are, are here are actual von Neumann automa automata that were uh, programmed into a computer after the technology was available. Um, so when von Neumann was developing this theory, he uh, came up with three essential parts that were absolutely required in order to have a self-reproducing machine. Um, so the machine in this instance is the automata, but it's really just, it's a machine. It's just the abstract kind of concept of, of what's required for this machine. And the three pieces, which I'll, I'm going to go through individually, um, were the universal constructor, a blueprint, and a supervisory unit. And um, I'm going to relate these to what they actually are in biological systems shortly, but I kind of want to go through the history of how von Neumann got to requiring three separate 
pieces for how to actually construct this machine. Uh, and the first part is absolutely essential, and it's really what comes out of Turing's work, and it's um, what's known as a universal constructor. And the basic definition of a universal constructor is it's a machine capable of constructing all possible constructible artifacts of its environment. So it's basically, you stick this machine in an environment and it can make anything that's possible to make out of that environment. And that's um, essentially the analog of what a Turing machine is. So a Turing machine can do any computation, a universal constructor can build anything. And so von Neumann took that as a something, if it's really a universal constructor, then it should be able to build itself. And so he came up at first with what became kind of a trivial uh, idea of self-reproduction which was that this universal constructor could just take things from its environment and the things were readily there and it could make itself. And this isn't really quite right because it could ad hoc put the pieces together wrong. It doesn't have instructions to make the actual, you know, to actually make itself. So von Neumann kind of quickly realized in order to make self-reproduction non-trivial. So the blueprint would be a blueprint of the I'm universal. Not getting the audio for a second there. Did it cut out? Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah, just cut out for a few seconds. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, so so the blueprint's essential. The blueprint is a blueprint of the universal constructor. Um, and so this is where it gets a little hairy. So it's actually really um, it's going to get a little bit a uh, little bit more technical here. But the basic idea was that you need the blueprint. The blueprint has a blue, it has a um, the map of how to build a universal constructor. You can feed it into the constructor. The constructor reads it and then takes the necessary components from the environment to make a copy of itself. Now, what happens in that case is that you make a new universal constructor, but you don't have a copy of the blueprint because you didn't include uh, a blueprint of the blueprint. Um, and this is the most fundamental issue with a self-reproducing system is that it has to be self-referential. And so what I mean by self-referential is that, um, well, I'll explain in just a minute what I mean by that, but it's, a really, uh, it's really actually uh, the foundational challenge here. And so what I mean by self-referential here is that the blueprint must have a blueprint of itself in order to be able to be copied. So if I want to feed a blueprint with a blue, it has a blueprint, and it has a blueprint of the universal constructor and a blueprint of itself into a universal constructor, that universal constructor can now make the blueprint plus the universal constructor. So it has, in effect, copied itself. But now I need to copy it again, and that blueprint does not have a blueprint of itself. And so what I find out is that if I actually want to keep self-reproduction going, I have to have an infinite hierarchy of blueprints within my blueprints. So I haven't really been able to come up with a good analogy for this concept, but one way, um, so this is going to be a really loose analogy, but one way to think about it is if I want to draw myself holding a mirror and I'm looking in a mirror, I'm actually going to have to draw all of the little mirrors reflected in the mirrors reflected in the mirrors in order to give an accurate copy of myself. So more effectively, it would be to, better to do that indirectly and say, for example, take a picture of myself holding the mirror and then draw the picture. And that's actually exactly what von Neumann's solution to the problem was, was that you need to have indirect self-reference. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute, but what I wanted to just kind of elucidate here was that there's actually some very deep connection 
to um, foundational problems in mathematics here. And for me, I think this issue of self-reference is fundamental to understanding biological systems, um, which I'll try to make a little bit clearer when I talk about the analogy to biology uh, in a few minutes. But um, it's also actually at the heart of the breakdown of mathematics at the beginning of uh, the 21st or 20th century. Um, so both Gödel and Turing proved that you can't have uh, complete completeness. Well, you have to have inconsistency or incompleteness in mathematical systems, and both the same concept of self-reference. So, for example, Gödel um, worked on the issue, like a particular statement in mathematics. If you have um, like a liar's paradox, that this statement is unprovable. That statement is if you prove it, then the statement is false, right? So it's it's an inconsistent mathematics. It's proved a false statement. Or if it is an actual true statement that this statement is unprovable, then um, your mathematics is incomplete because you can't prove that statement. And so it's actually because that statement refers to itself that you get this, this complete and utter breakdown of, of completeness in your mathematical system. Um, and Turing also proved that uncomputability is related to similar issues of self-reference. Um, but what Turing also proved, um, and so you guys can, we can get in a little bit more details of this, but it, it gets a little um, uh, technical, but I just want to kind of get at the main point here, was that going back to the Turing machine, was that a Turing machine can compute any possible algorithm. And that, so even though your mathematics can be incomplete, if you feed your, your computer, an algorithm, you can always compute it. But the problem, the problem is you have to avoid direct self-reference. You have to be indirectly self-referential. And so von Neumann was aware of all these issues in mathematics, and he came across the same kind of fundamental issues of self-reference in trying to devise a self-reproducing machine. And all of that is a very sort of deep and uh, um, kind of not direct connection um, but what von Neumann did with it is a very straightforward idea, and it, it's very it's very simple to understand, and um, it's actually really like blatantly obvious in modern biology. And so basically, what he said is, you don't want your blueprint to directly reference itself. You can't have a blueprint of your blueprint in your blueprint because otherwise, you're going to get these infinities, and you're going to have all kinds of problems. And he said, but what you can do is make a blueprint that has actually two rules. So, one, it can provide instructions that the universal constructor will read and then understand and then execute to copy itself. And then it can also just be copied flat without any reference to its instructional role, just copied exactly directly and passed on to the next universal constructor. And so, for example, if we go back to that mirror analogy, instead of trying to draw myself, that's effectively saying the universal constructor knows that I want a drawing of myself. It knows how to execute that task. So what it will do is actually just copy, take a, a, a direct image copy without any reference to the fact that um, I am, you know, a physical object or anything, and then just pass that picture, photograph of myself to the next universal constructor. Um, really, not the greatest analogy I know, but <laughs> it's kind of a hard concept to get around. Um, so what happens... I, I once heard this process phrased as taking a photocopy of a mirror and getting a spare photocopy machine. Yeah, yeah. I think, actually, I like that one. I might have to write that down. Photocopy machine is a good one. Yeah. 
I know. I'm like, I like struggling so hard to come up with a good analogy for this. And it's like even hard for, you know, it's, it's just a really hard concept to wrap your head around because, um, it's not something that we really encounter in our daily experiences, this idea of self-reference. Um, so in order um, for you to actually be able to read the blueprint two ways, the universal constructor is not necessarily going to know how to do that. And so what von Neumann decided, um, you needed actually a third component in addition to the universal constructor and the blueprint. And that third com component is just what he called a supervisory unit. And effectively, um, all that does is say, right now I want to read the instructions out of my blueprint and feed them into the universal constructor for copying. And now I want to complete the copy, so I just want to copy the blueprint directly. And so all the, the role of the supervisory unit is just basically to, to tell the system when it needs to read the blueprint um, as instructions and when it just needs to just superficially copy the blueprint and not care about what the instructions are. Um, and so this all seems a little abstract, I'm sure, but if we actually look at what biological systems are, we can see that there's really clear roles of these three parts in modern biological systems. Um, and I really want to um, point out that von Neumann had no knowledge of molecular biology when he was doing this work because DNA and things like ribosomes and things like hadn't been discovered yet. And so the fact that there's these uh, really strong connections I think is really profound. And when we're thinking about astrobiology and trying to think about universal principles of living systems, um, it's really interesting to consider uh, that von Neumann really didn't know all these details when he was doing this. And so potentially it's pointing at something that might be universal. So um, if we look at modern biological systems, the first thing I want to point out here is the other picture on my slide, which is in the right-hand corner here, which is the ribosome. And if you actually look, at, this is really cool, but if you actually look at what the function of a ribosome is, it's a universal constructor. It's a universal constructor in the sense that it can construct any possible protein. It can construct any possible sequence of amino acids. It is indifferent to whether those proteins are functional or not. It just can make them. So the actual um, space the ribosome is working in as a, ribo as a universal constructor is all of protein sequence space. And so um, probably you guys can guess what the blueprint in biology is. Anyone? Good. Usually be DNA. Yes. Unless you're using RNA. Yeah, so the blueprint is DNA. Um, so how does DNA have a dual role? Um, so this is kind of, uh, well, one, the ribosome reads out the instructions in DNA, and it makes proteins, right? And the proteins go and do their instructional tasks. But also, when you actually think about when DNA is copied, if you copy DNA, it's completely oblivious to the instructions that DNA contains. So, like, for example, DNA polymerase will copy any sequence of DNA. It doesn't, it doesn't give, give a shit if it's actually a protein or not, right? So, um, so, D, so DNA actually has this dual role. It's instructional in the sense that it, it specific DNA sequences code for specific proteins, but it's also a canonical blueprint in the fact that you can copy the sequence directly with indifference to what the sequence actually means. Um, and a supervisory unit in modern biology is, is the um, host of enzymes and things that actually aid in DNA replication and copying the whole system as a whole. So we have each of the pieces. Universal constructors are ribosome, DNA is the blueprint, and all the other enzymes and everything else is a supervisory unit that ensures that the DNA is read out two ways. 
And so really we can see that bi modern biology is in a lot of sense of von Neumann self-replicating automat. <laughs> I'm so bad with this word. <laughs> um, and so I think that's actually really uh, kind of fascinating. And so um, for the rest of uh, the discussion here, and I'd certainly love if you guys would jump in, I just want to talk about um, a few things that I think that this means in the context of the original life uh, implications and also search for life elsewhere in the universe. Um, so in the context of origin of life research, I think one thing that we can ask is, was there a universal constructor, something like a ribosome involved in the origin of life? And usually people will focus on the aspect of self-replication as being the most important facet of um, life getting started. And I think what they're really talking about is von Neumann's idea about trivial self-replication. Because you're not really talking about this kind of aspect of instructional information and feedback between um, you know, what the instructions are and what the actual blueprint is. And so um, potentially one would ask maybe if trivial self-reproduction came first. So I had a universal constructor and it was capable of taking things from its environment and making copies of itself, but only because those environmental components were readily available. So you can think of maybe self-assembly of peptides in a prebiotic environment that, you know, if I had the right peptides in the environment and the environment was just so, they would just naturally copy themselves. But that doesn't necessarily make them a living system, and it doesn't necessarily um, mean that you're going to get more complexity out of that type of system. So we could ask, uh, was a universal constructor first or was a blueprint first instead of was peptides first or was DNA first or RNA? Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting concept for us to consider in Origins of Life research. And um, I I'm, um, so I've been thinking about this quite a bit, and I am actually trying to work on some ideas about the role of algorithmic information in the context of original life, which I probably won't get into today because they're still very confused. Um, <laughs> it's very much a work in progress. Um, but one of the things I, I do want to say is just that I think that it's really this kind of instructional role of the information, that it's not, um, it's not just blatant copying. It's not just direct copying of a blueprint that's really making a living system. It's actually the fact that that information is executing tasks. It has a semantic role. Um, it, it's, it's functional. It's, it's instructional information. Um, so I think one of the important questions we need to ask in original life research is what was the first universal constructor? And there's a lot of work on the interior of the ribosome um, that it might have been very primitive, um, so potentially that could be it. Um, but this also is kind of interesting to think about in the context of what life might be like on other worlds. If we're thinking about chemical life, are there potentially other universal constructors? Are peptides the only kind of chemistry? the universal constructor? Is it the only thing um, that is uh, a, has an analog that is something like a, a universal constructor? So we might think in looking at other planetary chemistries, you know, are there, there are other sets of, of chemistry that could potentially fill that role? Um, I have a question. Yes. Is, is a virus a universal constructor? No. It's not because it's not capable of assembling anything from its environment. 
So a virus in this kind of con contest is not living because it doesn't have that capacity. So for like, I mean, people usually say it's because it doesn't have independent replicative ability. But in my view, it's actually because it doesn't it doesn't have a universal constructor. It's not capable of synthesizing anything from its environment. But from its drawing, point of view, drawing from that, we, we have self-replicating RNA strands. They made them in the lab. And yeah. virus can do that itself if you have all of the... Right, right components floating around in the mixture sometimes. You just can't synthesize the proteins. So is the DNA strand in the virus a universal constructor for DNA? Well... Just not for the proteins. Yeah, so um, this is kind of the hairy thing about biology, and for me as a physicist, it's the most frustrating thing about biology, but it's that you can never look at that individual RNA strand individually. So you actually have to take the context in the entire environment as... as um, as being the informational system you're looking at. So those self-replicating RNAs in the test tube are actually only self-replicating in the context of their environment. And there's, DNA, there's uh, specific enzymes they put in there that aid in that self-replication. And it's not really... Um, I mean, would you... I, I guess, like, this but, is always the it, question. From, from, an origin of li from an origin of life standpoint, maybe you had self-replicating DNA first, or self-replicating RNA, depending on who you ask. This is the geobiologists argue about this endlessly because they have no data. Yeah. Then you have transition later to the proteins because they somehow you develop something that exploits the existing amino acid background. And yeah. There's really no easy way to disentangle well, that. How could it do that? This is always my problem with it because I mean this. It, it evolves something that's more efficient at replicating itself than it takes over. Yeah, the but the most efficient replicators at that level are always the shortest, least complex replicators. So they're, 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 I'm just saying that from the von Neumann perspective, you could either have the DNA doing the, doing the universal constructing, or you could have the protein doing the universal constructing. Yeah, but the RNA is never from doing... From, so, okay. from, a, from a chemical perspective, you, you end up getting mm -hmm. more information. No, I know exactly what you're saying. The architecture is independent of the hardware. Here's the distinction. In the case of RNA... An RNA is not, an individual RNA strand is not a universal constructor. It will, the only thing it can possibly possibly make is a copy of itself or potentially a nearby copy of itself, a, a mutant that is very close in sequence to itself, right? A universal constructor is capable of reading anything in and making anything else out of it. That's a very big distinction. A universal constructor can construct any possible sequence. A single self-replicating RNA cannot. And so I think that that is actually really fundamental. It's fundamental to evolvability and complexification of these systems. And I don't think that a single self-replicating molecule is capable of starting a living system. Hey, so, so, so if, a yes. if a universal constructor was involved in the origin of life, who or what built the universal constructor that started everything? I, <laughs> the chicken or the egg problem, yeah. right? So the, the, this is where Conway's game of life comes in, right? Because he yeah. showed you could throw things in at random and... So some random patterns would emerge that had some limited right. copying ability, and then they would sort of propagate. So I would say that initially the universal constructor was actually the environment. Um, and so in that sense, I, I am completely and utterly adamant that you cannot look at the original life at a microscopic level. It has to be a system-level process because only actual chemical systems can build universal constructors or have any kind of facet that's related to that if we're going to just stick within the von Neumann-type definition. So you can't start at the level of individual molecular interactions and expect to get a living system. You actually have to look at um, a systems-level approach. And 
there are a few models in the literature that do that, but but they're few and far in between. I think usually people like to start with this idea of a self-replicator that can complexify and evolve. And um, I don't I don't think that. Uh, I mean, given that we don't know if Darwinian uh, type systems are even if if they have an innate capacity for complexification or if there's other principles that might be at play that lead to biological complexity, I just don't think that, that we can just assume that a self-replicator is enough for... for the now we have to define complexity, I think. Yeah. How do I add uh, Grasshopper to this? You would press the same plus button. He's calling me. But he's calling me and it doesn't give me an ad for him. Yeah, so hang up and then add him. Okay, hang on. Sorry. I'm like, what is going on here? Grasshopper. Oh, shoot. I don't have him in my contacts. Hang on one second. Sorry. Um, whoops. Okay, um, yeah, so I think, I think we need to take a, sort of a more holistic approach to the original life if we're going to look at these kind of things. Um, is everybody, can you guys still hear me? I think I might have lost. Okay. Sorry. Um, and I think it has a lot of implications for actually defining what life is. Sarah, are you still there? Iris is not alive in, in, in the context of thinking about some of the things we've been discussing here, but certainly alive in the context of a greater global system. So it can be part of a biological, um, biologically organized system, but it's not necessarily on its own one. And, and that's sort of the, the tricky thing about biology is no individual component of a biological system is alive, but the system as a whole is living. Um, yeah, so uh, I was just going to, yeah, so I just in the context of planetary exploration and things, I think it's, it's really instructive to think about what potential other chemistries might lead. Oh, what happened? Are you guys still there? Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm adding grasshopper now. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, I think that that's kind of a, um, an important concept that we can think about. And I'd certainly like to encourage uh, chemists to start thinking about those things. Um, and also, as far as implications for divine, defining what is life, um, I have a lot of, uh, you know, sort of uh, my own ideas on this. Um, in particular, I think uh, one of the things that really characterizes living systems and doesn't appear in any other physical system I know of is this idea of self-reference. So, for example, this is a really important distinction between replicating a crystal and replicating a biological system. A biological system has some knowledge of itself through, D like, the DNA gets expressed as protein, but the protein feeds back on the DNA. Um, so I, I ha it intrinsically has this um, sort of information flows from the DNA to top-level processes, but it also feeds back downward. Um, so the information in the proteome can affect what DNA is actually um, expressed, um, what DNA is selected for in evolutionary processes. Uh, crystals don't have any kind of self-reference like that. They're, they are blatantly just the, the basic, like, superficial definition of a blueprint. And they, they are copied because their environmental context allows them to be, but not because they have um, this uh, aspect of uh, algorithmic information that I think is actually really essential to living systems. Could you argue, could you argue that the crystal structure itself is that blueprint? It is a blueprint, but it's not an instructional blueprint. There, I, I did see a thing at one point. Somebody was talking about cr how crystal defects propagate. Not the lattice itself. That's a very regular structure. But breaks in it. Yeah. And those I, then uh, propagate to the next layer of the lattice. 
problem is you can't really grow that system without limit because eventually you run out of crystal. Yes. And I, and I would argue that they don't... Um, but it's sort of a two-dimensional game of life type thing as it goes up, as it goes along the length of the crystal as it grows. Yes. And I would also argue that a individual crystal is not capable of making any crystal. So I would say that it doesn't have... No, but, but, that, but that pattern of defects is... The pattern of... The problem is that you only get so many steps because you only have so many layers in the lattice. Right, right. That is one issue. Um, so I think one of the, the main points that yeah, I've take, taken out of this, which is awesome, is that the, the origin of life requires a chemical system around it that's presumably a, on a scale that's a lot larger than it is to start. Yes. And it's that entire yeah. system that's the universal constructor? Yeah. So oh, I really think that the origin of life is more of a statistical process than a unique event. And a lot of it comes from this kind of idea that you need uh, this aspect of self-reference. And if you really want to get into the hairy details, I'm trying to write this up in a, a manuscript right now, but um, but uh, I don't know. Okay. Like, do you guys really want to hear what I think happened at the origin of life? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> well, I don't know. We're running short on time, sorry. Yes, it's like 10 absolutely. <laughs> I know. Actually, it's really exciting. But um, but so normally in every so I'm a physicist, right? And I really trying to think about like foundational physical principles that make life different. Um, every physical system usually has information flowing from lower scales to higher scales. Um, so for example, uh, the you know individual configurations of a gas define what the temperature of that gas is. But you never have the temperature of a gas determining um, acting back down to determine what the individual uh, microstates of the system are doing. But you do have in biology, for example, DNA acting upward to make the protein expression, for example, and the protein expression acting back downward to change the DNA configuration. And so what I think the original life is, is actually transition from upward information flow to downward information flow. And it's the only physical system you ever have where information is capable of manipulating matter. And I think all of that is stemming from von Neumann's uh, thing of it. And I'll end on that. My mind is blown. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping for that. But I hope I wasn't too confusing. No, that was great, Sarah. Thanks. I learned a lot from that. I, 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 hadn't, I didn't know about the hierarchy of, of constructors. I knew that there was the idea that a robot could be self-replicating. Uh, but um, yeah, you definitely helped clarify sort of the... The, the computer science behind some of that. Yeah, I think it's actually really constructive for us as astrobiologists and people who act, ask what is life to think about these kind of um, more universal abstract ideas in, in actually formulating what it is that we're even talking about. Is that written anywhere, this concept of universal constructive are really applied to biology in a language that would be understandable to biologists? Yeah, so I was actually thinking of maybe writing like a essay type thing after trying to develop this seminar um, for astrobiologists on this. So if anybody's interested in, in reading that and potentially helping me clarify some of these ideas, I would love that. I think it'd be really um, instructive for me and for possibly the community. The, the general idea... The general idea of the ribosome as a universal constructor of a machine, 
I've heard that before from some biologists I've talked to. Oh, no, 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 that's not me, actually. That, that idea is pretty universally accepted. I don't think that most astrobiologists really think about it that way. So that would be kind of um, the purpose of aiming it at that community. And it's, I think it's probably a useful thing for the chemistry types to figure out. Because yeah. the, geo, the geobiologists, I said, they argue endlessly about one precursor biologic system or another being able to provide the environment to make a universal constructor in the first place. Right. Yeah, but is there but other other architectures that we don't see in the history of the Earth be interesting to consider? Yes, I think so. I think um, you know, like talking about all these uh, potential like um, chemistries on other planets. I was going to call them geochemistry, but I guess they're not technically in that case. It would be. I think it would be really instructive to think about what kind of universal constructors might come out of those systems that might potentially be different than a ribosome, for example. I mean, you don't even have to think about what the, the chemical structure of the universal constructor is, but just are there things like amino acids that can make a variety of peptides and therefore ser serve as a, um, a platform for what could be constructed, if that makes sense. Yeah. There is a trick, astrochemically, you, you can make amino acids fairly easily. Right. So it might be... The trick is making an environment where you've got large numbers of them recombining with each other continuously so that you can end up with something where self-replication is favored. Yes. Yes. Well, Sarah, can I ask a question? Um, Absolutely. If, um, how does this idea for the origin of life sort of relates to uh, Robert Shapiro's idea of metabolism first, which sort of compares with the the RNA world hypothesis. I think mm -hmm. Shapiro passed away, I think, just this last yeah, year. Yeah, but he did. Um, that was, yeah, so if you could comment on that. Yeah, yeah. I had, like the whole first half of my paper is kind of addressing traditional pictures on, on information in the origin of life. And I would say, um, there's, there's two aspects to way people usually look at original life research, which is genetics first or metabolism first. And if you look at actually what the information is doing, it's really digital first or analog first. So um, metabolism is analog first and uh, genetics is digital first. Um, and I really don't think either of those approaches is driving at this kind of algorithmic instructional aspect of the information. So it's really kind of missing the broader picture. Um, and both individually have flaws. So, for example, the analog first would potentially be something akin to a uh, universal constructor. But the problem I have with metabolism first scenarios in particular is they're not capable of doing any computation. So, if you actually think about what an, why we don't use analog computers is because you have to cable um, all of the wires together in a specific arrangement to calculate, for example, a logarithm. But if you want to calculate... Um, an, um, you know, cosine from that same computer, you actually have to rearrange all the configurations. And so if you're talking about a, a metabolism first original life, that metabolism first scenario would actually completely have to be destroyed in order to make um, another potential system. So it's not really an evolvable system in the sense that we would think of a, a traditional biological system. Um, and so I have some fundamental conceptual issues with metabolism first pictures for that reason. And you can get into some stuff with digital first pictures that is, is similarly contentious. Um, and I think that these are all issues that we need to think about that haven't really been discussed um, that deeply. So your approach is maybe more of a replication first or information first or, or computability first? Yeah, I would say... Um, the origin of life is a collective phenomena, and what you need first is um, some kind of computability, some kind of algorithmic processing. 
at a global level that then um, directs the uh, local interactions in chemistry. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I like it. Thanks. Well, I think, uh, Sanjoy, is that about time for us? Do we have time for maybe one more quick question from someone? Sure, one more quick question. All right, then. I think everybody's mind is blown. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Sarah. That was great. Thank you, guys. It yes. was very uh, enjoyable to discuss this with you. I love having uh, people that are excited about the same things I am. So, great. Well, thank you again, Sarah. Make sure you guys tune in again next time. Uh, it'll be January 5, 2012 at uh, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, GMT minus 9. Thank you all, and thanks, Mark, again for that beverage. I'm looking forward to trying a flat, warm beer. Yeah, me too. See everyone. Silence with cases, private prejudice, with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.